As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. By Christ's spirit, may they be our counselors now. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word, the book of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on many of the Pew Bibles on page 1078. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've uh, been away from it for a while, but we want to resume where we left off in Mark chapter 11. We left off at verse 20, uh, but to remind ourselves of the context in which this passage comes, I want to begin our reading at verse 12. So Mark chapter 11, beginning our reading at verse 12, but focusing on verses 20 through 25. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we are resuming our series in the book of Mark, as I said, where we left off. And we left off back in October, Um, so it's been a while since we've considered this book. And we want to kind of reorient ourselves to where we are in Mark's gospel. Um, And all of Mark's gospel really has been driving towards Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Um, We know from the other Gospels that Jesus went to Jerusalem several times throughout his earthly ministry, but as Mark tells the story, he's telling it in one sort of push towards Jerusalem. That's how he is telling the story. And so Jerusalem takes on a very big significance in the life and ministry of Jesus. And beginning in chapter 11, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the Christ, as the Son of God, and from chapter 11 really through to chapter 14, the focus is going to be on Jesus' activity in Jerusalem and the reaction to that activity. 
So primarily it's about what Jesus does and particularly how the people react to him. But sprinkled throughout will be Jesus' instruction of his disciples using his activity and the reaction to that activity to teach them important things about his kingdom and about their work. Um, And this is one of those passages where what Jesus does is used as an occasion to teach his disciples. So chapter 11 began with Jesus entering into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, Jesus cleansing the temple, and either side of the temple is this story of the fig tree, the fig tree that has been withered away to its roots. And Jesus uses what happens with this fig tree as an opportunity to teach his disciples about faith, about prayer, about forgiveness. And that's how we want to think about this passage this morning. We see here the call to faith, the consequence of prayer, and the concern for forgiveness that our Lord draws our attention to this morning. The call for faith, the consequence of prayer, and the concern for forgiveness. Um, The call to faith is really what comes here. It's Jesus' statement in response to what Peter says, have faith in God. Uh, Jesus is calling his people to, in the first place, an act of faith, to have faith. That's the call that comes out in this passage. And at different times, Scripture calls us to faith. And depending on where it's talking about faith, it may be highlighting a particular aspect. So different passages in Scripture give us different kinds of definitions of faith and really emphasize certain aspects of faith. So we want to ask the question, what is Jesus emphasizing here? What is the aspect of faith he's calling on God's people to have? And I like the person who said, the call is to confidence in God as a particular act of trust. Uh, That faith that has confidence in God and trusts in God, uh, that's the aspect I think that Jesus is highlighting here. Uh, William Lane in his fine commentary said, uh, it's a quiet confidence in the power and goodness of God who accomplishes everything. Um, John Calvin said that this aspect of faith is to expect and to be fully assured of obtaining from God whatever we need. It's the confidence that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Um, and whether it's the Spirit's witness in Ephesians 3 or these other uh, witnesses, we hear in all of that the, the emphasis on confidence, on assurance, on trusting in God. Uh, that's the aspect that's really being highlighted here, a confidence and trust in God's ability in God's ability to do what needs doing. And it comes in the context of Peter's statement that seems to betray a lack of confidence and trust in God's ability. Um, Jesus curses the fig tree, then they go into the temple, and the next day in the morning, they're passing by that same fig tree, and they see that that tree has gone from being green and in leaf to being withered away to its roots. And Peter, poor Peter, Um, sees the fig tree, and what does he say? Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Uh, You cursed it, and it's cursed. He seems surprised. Um, Doesn't that betray a sort of lack of confidence in what God can do? That he's surprised that what Jesus said to happen has happened. Um, This is the part of the problem. And I think this is what Jesus is responding to. It's tantamount to Peter saying, Lord, I can't believe it. What you said actually happened. 
Um, what does that betray? It betrays a lack of confidence, a lack of trust in God's ability to do what he does. It's a lack of trust and ability that God can be God. Um, that's really what's happening here in the context for it. And that's what Jesus is calling for in response, a confident trust in God's ability to do what we should expect that he can do. It's the kind of confident trust we saw all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. When a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. That's a confidence, isn't it? That's a confident trust in Jesus. He comes and says, you can make me clean. You can do what no one else can do for me. If you will, you can make me clean. That's the kind of confidence, that's the kind of faith that Jesus is calling for. That's the act of faith that he's calling for here. And notice that that act of faith that Jesus is called for is connected to the object of our faith. Right? Sort of as a, as a pastor, it drives me crazy when I hear a sort of popular definition of faith as a leap in the dark. Um, Jesus doesn't just say, have faith as a leap in the dark. Or have faith in something that you shouldn't have faith in. Or, you know, some people use that just in our, in our call. You should just have faith. Just have faith. You want to say, have faith in what? It makes all the difference, doesn't it? Um, if, if you have this, if you see someone with a broken down car and they say, I'm planning on driving across country, but I have faith that the car will get me there. You're going to look at that car and say, I'm not sure you should have that kind of faith in this car. Right? We kind of understand that faith is only as good as its object. Jesus is not saying, have faith as just sort of a leap in the dark. What does he say? Have faith in God. It's the object of our faith to which our faith looks. Uh, faith is only as good as its object, and the object of our faith is God. That's why when Peter doubts that this thing that Jesus has spoken came true, is surprised that this thing he has spoken has come true, Jesus says you ought to have faith in God. It's a betrayal that Peter really doesn't understand yet, the true power and ability of God, which is quite remarkable isn't it? Given what Peter has already seen of the power of God and what Peter has himself personally experienced of the power of God. He should have ample reason to understand these things at this point because of the many miracles that he's seen. He's seen miracles over nature, Jesus calming the winds and the waves over demons, over disease, even over death, telling someone who's dead to wake up and live, and she does. Right? He has ample reason to see the power, to see and understand the ability of God, but he can't still fully comprehend it, that God can do what God is able to do. And I think that's why Jesus ups the ante by what he says in verse 23. It's his way of saying, you're surprised that a tree was withered by the power of God? What does he say in verse 23? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
No, they're standing on the Mount of Olives as Jesus says this. Mount of Olives was a mountain about an elevation of 2,700 feet. And from there, you could see the Dead Sea about 20 miles away. And what Jesus seems to be saying to them is that you think it's strange that a tree has been withered in a day? The mountain that we're standing on could be picked up and tossed into that sea 20 miles away by the power of our God. You still have too small a conception of God's ability. That's, I think, what Jesus is trying to drive home, the way Paul will put it later when he says God is able to do far more abundantly than all we are able to ask or even to think. Um, God's ability is not to be underestimated. The problem is never God's ability to do things. The problem is always our ability to believe in his ability to do things. Faith is the problem. That's why Jesus brings up that perpetual obstacle to faith, which is doubt. What interferes with us engaging in that act of faith that puts its trust in the proper object of faith? It's that obstacle to faith, our doubts, where we begin to waver in our hearts about whether or not God is able to do things, right? If, if you believe and don't doubt, that's always our problem, uh, that we are subject to doubt, right? It's the thing that Jesus has dr- driven home just recently in the gospel of Mark, that to those who believe, the impossible is achievable, right? That was the Lord's clear message to the father who had a boy who was possessed by a demon. There's no other way to take what Jesus says in Mark 9.23. All things are possible for one who believes. Right? The impossible is achievable for the one who believes. There's no reason to doubt the ability of our God. But what gets in the way? It's our doubts. We begin to doubt in our hearts. Thomas Manton said, the work of faith is to glorify God and apply his power. Unbelief stumbles most at that, rather at God's can than at God's will. Uh, Can God really do it? That's where we begin to dispute in our minds. That's what this word for faith really means, to begin to debate about whether or not something's true, to to start to dispute in your minds between two opinions. Is God really able to do what needs doing? That's what doubt creeps in to say, is God really able? Why did Jesus need to tell that demon-possessed boy's father that all things were possible for him who believes? Because the father had had doubt begin to creep into his mind about whether Jesus was really able to help. Right? The father had come to Jesus and said in chapter 9, 22, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. See how doubt crept in? If you can do anything. I'm debating in my mind now whether you can help. I'm disputing in my mind whether you can help. And that's why Jesus had to come to him and say, all things are possible for him who believes, right? If you can, that's how Jesus responded. If you can, all things are possible for him who believes, Then the father struck out wonderfully. I believe, help my unbelief. 
Right? That's what doubt does. It begins to creep in. We waver in our hearts. One person said, we waver between hope and fears. We waver between help and God. One of Israel's greatest sins in the wilderness was when they found themselves lacking food, they asked the question, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Can he really help and feed us now? Um, They doubted. They were wavering over whether God could really help them. Or when Elisha came to Samaria and told the king of Israel who was in siege and so under siege that food prices were through the roof because they had no food in the town. And Elisha said, you know, tomorrow all the food prices will go back to normal. The Lord's going to break the siege. Everything's going to go back to being fine. And the guard on whom the king was leaning said, even if the Lord opened up the windows of heaven, how could that be? What was the problem in the wilderness? What was the problem of that guard? They both were saying, I don't think the Lord can. I don't think the Lord can. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't let doubts creep into your heart about whether the Lord can. Again, Thomas Manton is helpful. He said, usually we don't doubt for lack of a clear promise, but out of low thoughts of God. We cannot carry his love, power, truth, above the present temptation and believe that there is love enough to justify us from so many sins or power enough to deliver us from so great a death or danger and bounty enough to bestow so great a mercy. We begin to just wonder if God really can do what we need him to do. What we have to understand here is what Jesus is calling us to, what he's calling his disciples to, what he's calling his disciples in every generation to, is to have faith in God. To have the faith that says, Lord, you can. That trusts that God will be God. The kind of faith that leper had when he said, you can make me clean. Right? The kind of faith that the three men who were being threatened to be thrown in the fiery furnace had when Nebuchadnezzar said, who's going to deliver you out of my hand if I throw you into my furnace? And they said, God can deliver us out of your hand. Whether he will or not, is his business. But if you're asking who can, the Lord can. We don't know whether he will or not, but we know we're not bowing down to your dumb image. You do what you will, but we have a God who can. That was their faith. That's what made Abraham the father of the faithful, because he did not waver, he did not doubt concerning the promises of God. Paul says in Romans 4, 20 and 21, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Made him waver, same word for doubt here. Concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's the faith we're being called to here. God is able to do what he promised. The call of faith here is to cast all doubt aside and to believe in God's ability. As one person put it, nothing is too big for true faith to obtain, but that faith must have a promise to lean upon and must be showed by prayer. And I think that's why this discussion of faith naturally leads to prayer. Prayer is the consequence of a faith like this. right? The faith that believes, Lord, you can, then prays to the Lord who can. That's why our Lord makes a connection between faith and prayer that is the consequence of faith. 
Right? That's why the consequence of prayer follows from the call to faith. Right? Jesus says that in verse 24. After calling for this kind of faith, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Right? A faith that believes that God can prays and calls to the God who can. Uh, that's what faith does. Uh, we pray in faith if we believe in this kind of God. And we believe that we've received it even before we ask it. Faith doesn't doubt in God's ability and his will to give us all things. So the believer prays in faith, in confident trust in God to be God, and without doubt, without wavering over whether God will do what needs to be done for his people. Prayer calls out to the God who we trust to be God. And what do we know about our God? Right? That's why the object of faith is so important that we rightly understand our God when we pray, when we call on Him. Who is the God on whom we are calling? Our God is powerful. So we pray without doubting confidently to a God we know is able to do all the things that we ask of Him. Our God is powerful. Our God is also true. So we pray in the confidence that he will be true to all the things that he's promised to do. We pray to a God who is wise. So we pray in the confidence that he will do what is best for us out of his great wisdom. And he will do it when it is best for us out of his great wisdom. We know that our God is wise. And we know that our God is kind. So we pray in the confidence that he only deal with us kindly as the Father who loves us and sent his Son to save us. The prayer of faith trusts in God to be God. Nothing that Jesus says here is attempting to present God to us as if he's a genie who grants wishes. And that the only condition for getting what you wish for is sufficiently believing. Right? People have taken this passage and twisted it until they make Jesus say, you can have whatever you want from your father, you just have to believe it enough. And therefore, if you ask him and you don't get it, it's because you didn't believe enough. Had you believed enough, you would have had it. Right? And that becomes poison for the soul. Because in every disappointment we have in our prayers, we blame ourselves for. And we say, it must be that I didn't pray hard enough, or I didn't believe strongly enough, or the Lord would have given it to me. You see, the prayer of faith trusts in God to be God, and the prayer of faith also listens to God when he tells us what we are like. What does the Bible tell us about prayer and about our God? That we have to leave things to his will because while he is powerful and true and wise and kind, we are weak and sinful. The fact of the matter, the Holy Spirit tells us in Romans 8.26, is that in our weakness, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Right? Our God tells us, in your weakness, you will often not know what to pray for as you ought. The Bible also tells us that we ask wrongly at times in order to spend the things that we're asking from God on our passions. 
So if we're weak, and sometimes we don't know what to ask, and sometimes we ask wrongly so that we can spend it on our passions, what kind of God would God be if He always gave us what we wanted? If He took the prayers we offer in our weakness and the wrong prayers we offered and simply granted them, if He did that, God would not be God. He would not be a loving heavenly father who looks out for his children when he knows better than what they do what's best for them. Our heavenly father would not be the loving, caring father he is if he just allowed us to have everything we asked according to our weakness or according to our sinful passions. John Calvin was very helpful on this. He said, The Holy Spirit must of necessity hold all our affections by the bridle of the word of God and bring them into obedience. Christ promises nothing to his disciples unless they keep themselves within the limits of the good pleasure of God. That's a wonderful way of thinking about it, isn't it? That we're like a wild horse, and if we don't have the bridle of the word of God holding us, we will run into every kind of trouble. And so we're held by the bridle of the word of God. The Holy Spirit holds us and keeps our passions in check. That's why we understand that our prayers of faith have to be regulated by God's word, the God who we believe in and who has spoken to us. As one person said, our faith can't wander out of the limits of God's word when we pray. So when our true God has promised certainly to give us something, we should be confident that when we pray, he will give it to us. Where we have a true and certain promise, we should not doubt that our God will give the things that he's promised. He has promised to forgive us our sins if we ask in Jesus' name for forgiveness of sins. He has promised to give us eternal life when we ask in faith those things of him. We should not doubt that he will give them when we ask. He's promised. That's the confidence we have in the things that are promised to us. John talks about that confidence in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. If we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We have that confidence in prayer that our Lord talks about here, receiving the things that we've asked for. But what about where God has not given a certain promise? How does God's word teach us to think about our prayers then? If next week I'm diagnosed with a deadly illness, how am I to pray about that? Can I pray for healing? God hasn't certainly promised me in his word that he would heal me from anything I get sick from. And so how do I pray in faith then? Well, then we pray in faith by glorifying the God who is God. One person said, when we have no certain assurance of his will, the work of faith is to glorify and apply his power, leaving his will to himself. He is so good that you may refer yourself to his goodness. Whether he grant your prayer or not, he is a wise God and a loving father, and he will do what is best. The children of God know his heart is full of love, and that is best, which their heavenly father thinks best. There are times when we don't have a clear understanding from God's word what God is promising to do for us in a particular trouble or trial. 
His word isn't clear, like this is what I'm going to do every single time this happens. But when we don't have a clear understanding of his promise for something in our lives, we do have a clear understanding of who he is. Nothing that happens to me in my life changes the fact that God is powerful and that he's true and that he's good and that he's wise and that he's kind. I can know that he is too wise to make mistakes and he's too good to be unkind. And I can pray to him in that kind of confidence, knowing for certain that whatever befalls me, as Lamentations 3.29 tells us, there may yet be hope. And as a couple verses later reminds us, for the Lord will not cast off forever. I can always hope that God will be God. And even when he, his will for some particular thing in my life is not clear from his word, we can pray with that kind of confidence. Father, you are good. I know you will be kind to me in life or death. You are loving. I know you will show your love to me even in the midst of suffering. You are wise. I know you will not make any mistakes. I trust you to do what is best for me. So your will be done. And then we can submit ourselves in hope to our heavenly faithful father. That's praying with the kind of confidence that Jesus is talking about in verse 24. The believer who bows his head before the hidden glory of God and the fullness of faith does so in the certainty that God can deal with every situation and any difficulty and that with him nothing is impossible. This is the God we have. This is the God we serve. That's why prayer is the consequence of that kind of faith. And there's one more concern that Jesus wants to make sure his people take seriously in their prayers, and that's forgiveness. Some people have found it like taking whiplash through this text, thinking that somehow Jesus is moving all over the place by talking about faith and then by prayer and then about forgiveness. But it seems clear that Jesus is teaching that just as faith is fundamental to prayer, so is an attitude of forgiveness in his people. The way one person put it is, the heart that prays must be filled with the love that forgives. Not only does it have to be emptied of doubt, it has to be filled with the love that forgives. We've talked a lot about the different attributes of God, but here we are reminded of that great attribute of our God, that he is a forgiving God. Our God is a forgiving God. And so he wants his people to be a forgiving people. This is the thing that Jesus wants all of his disciples to pray for together. All of the statements that Jesus makes in verses 24 and 25 are in the plural. Uh, if we were Southerners, we would say y'all. Right? This is, this is the, the call that comes in verses 24 and 25. We just do that for verse 25. And whenever you all stand praying, forgive. And if you all have anything against anyone, so that your Father also forgives, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you all your trespasses. What does God want? He wants for all of us to be praying this together so that God's people are being a forgiving people. And when they stand together praying, they're to forgive together. Right? When, when we understand the command that way, it's really a prayer that all of God's people together would forgive anything that they have against anyone else in the church. There's an unmistakable of the echo of the Lord's prayer here. Forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. Just as we have a Father in heaven who forgives those who have trespassed against him, so his people on earth are to be a people who forgive those who have trespassed against them. So that by doing so, they would show that they are children of their Father in heaven. And Jesus, by doing this, is teaching us something fundamental about the church as a community of faith, something the disciples need to know amongst themselves, something they need to take forward as they grow Christ's church, is that our prayers must proceed not only from a heart of faith, but also from a heart of forgiveness. We should know at a very basic level, the church cannot function as a community of forgiven sinners as long as we are unwilling to forgive one another. But on a practical level, we cannot function if we are an unforgiving people. We can't be a church without forgiveness. But even more seriously, we can't really be children of God without forgiveness. We can't be children of God without forgiveness. As someone said, we have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brethren. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of the sins we asked to have pardoned if we cherish malice towards our fellow men. We must have the heart of a brother toward our neighbor on earth if we wish God to be our Father in heaven. We must not flatter ourselves that we have the spirit of adoption if we cannot bear and forbear as our Father does. And if you think that's putting it too strongly, think about the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we're not forgiving to others, the Bible tells us we ought not to expect forgiveness from our God. That's how we show that we are children of our Father in heaven. He is a forgiving God. When we are a forgiving people, we show that we belong to him. We show that we bear the marks of the spirit of adoption. We're children of our Father in heaven. He's a forgiving father. We are forgiving children. We show that we have a heart like the heart of our older brother, Jesus Christ, who had not only a heart of faith that could move mountains, but he had a heart of forgiveness that made him willing to come and die for the people who had trespassed against him, for the worst of the people who had trespassed against him. His heart was so forgiving that he was willing to come and to die for them. All of these things have to be operating in the hearts of God's people. And none of this can we have except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may it be our constant prayer that Christ by his Spirit would form this kind of heart in us. A heart of faith that believes that nothing is too big for our Heavenly Father to do. And that praise in response to that great faith in Him. And that we would forgive with the great love with which we have been loved and show we are children of our Father in Heaven. May He grant that in us by His Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we know that too often doubt creeps into our hearts about your ability to do what we need done. We have too small and too low a view of you. We pray that you would help us by this text to listen to the words of our Lord and to exalt our thoughts and our minds about who you are. 
And may that prayer then lead to, may that faith lead to prayers of faith that exalt you as the God who is able to do more, more abundantly than all we ask or think. And may we have that same heart for forgiveness that our Lord shows, uh, that he's coming and willing to die uh, for the worst of sinners because his heart is filled with a willingness to forgive. Lord, if we have been unwilling to forgive anyone, would you put it on our hearts to give those things up to you, to release them to you, confident that you are the God who will do all things justly, and then we can trust ourselves safely to you. Help us in these things, we pray by your spirit. We know that they are too much for us, but that nothing is too much for you. So hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.